As everybody's getting settled in, you can grab your Bibles or load up your Bible or however you need to get a hold of it. We'll be in, in two places this morning. We'll be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as everybody's getting settled back in, we'll start in Mark. If you happen to see, some of you know a, a, a volunteer, a very strong ministry team leader here at our church. His name is Nick Canetti. You won't see him this morning. It's the first time he told me that since Echoes had its doors open and that they've been... Nick got saved here. Kim Marie, help me. March, April, May? March. March. And Nick's had family that have come and part of us. And Aaron's here. And Nick's mom, Kathy, is here. And, um, you know, Nick texted me last night about 11 o'clock. And he said, or I don't remember what time it was. I went to bed at 9 o'clock. This party, party happy guy that I am. Um, he texted me, I don't remember what time it was, it was late. He said, you know, Pastor, do you know if someone's planning to plow and shovel the high school tomorrow morning? And I said, that's a really good question. I said, but I've got my shovel already packed in the car. You know, we'll, we'll tackle it tomorrow morning. Got some volunteers coming in at 8. He said, well, I'm out plowing right now. He said, uh, you know, I'll just go over and I'll plow and I'll lay down some salt and I'll shovel. You know, he was out till 4.30 this morning plowing and shoveling as part of his job. But he came over here, I don't know, about 3 o'clock and plowed and he shoveled and laid salt down so that we could have church this morning. And I know he's not here today. But, um, you know, it's, it's, there are probably 60 or 70 of you just like Nick who give your time and your energy, not for any salary, not for any money, but, but you, because you want to serve your church, you want to serve your community. If you have a chance to see Nick, he would never stand up and tell you that he did it. But if you see Nick over the next week or so, just it might mean a lot to him if you just thanked him. And just, sometimes when you do things, though, the only reward you get is when someone says thank you. So I want to make sure he's well rewarded for what he did this morning. And, and for, the, for the 20 or so of you that came this morning when it was cold and helped us get everything ready, some even brought their shovels even though we didn't need them. They just responded to it. I just want to thank you for that. You know, I was looking about 65 to 70% of our average Sunday morning attendance is already plugged into serving somewhere here at Echo, and I'm thrilled for that. Thank you for being part of that. You're helping us make things go here. So um, enough about my little musings. Let's jump into the Word this morning. We're going to have kind of a compressed message today because we're breaking our 21 days of... of of prayer and fasting and Bible study. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean don't study your Bible till January of next year, okay? It just means that we've been fasting together um, for the last three weeks, and this morning kind of ends that three-week period. So we thought it might be a great way to, to kind of commemorate the end of this fast by, by taking communion together. And to be quite honest with you, I came here, September 9th was my first Sunday here as a campus pastor. And since I've been here, we haven't had communion yet. And I've been asked several times about that. Guys, honestly, it's not because I have some religious objection to communion. Quite the contrary. I find communion to be one of the most intimate, very real, uh, a necessary part of continuing on the spirit of what Jesus uh, asked for us to do that day. We're going to look at that. Here's the the, the reality. Because of the logistics for us, it's taken a little while for us to get to a place where we felt like we could facilitate on that Sunday morning. Um, So we're going to start... This morning, we're going to have communion today. We'll be having it regularly throughout the year, multiple times throughout the year together. Here's one of my fears as a pastor. I'm afraid that anything that I teach you to do regularly can quickly become routine. And it can lose its meaning. Anything that you do regularly runs the risk of becoming routine. Um, you know, we, t- we, we teach when you get saved and when you make a decision to follow Jesus, we teach you things like we want you to read your Bible every day. We want you to pray every day. We want you to learn to confess your sins. We want you to surrender. These are all important things and we want to do that every day. But here's the risk. If we start doing the same thing every day, it can quickly become routine and we lose the meaning behind it. What we really want is we want you to want to and to enjoy 
reading your Bible every day. We want you to want to pray every day and to talk to God and to listen to God. We want you to want to come to the Lord's table and take communion together and understand what it means and honor and reflect and look forward and to celebrate communion the way that Jesus intended to. And so for us to do that, we wanted to start off this Sunday by talking just a little bit about communion when we finish our, as we finish our Fans and Followers series. So come with me to two passages, one that talks about the Last Supper and one that talks about the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read to you this morning from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. This is the Last Supper, the last meal Jesus had with his disciples before he was crucified. And it reads this way from the New Living Translation, beginning at verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? So Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. This is just so cool I just, that Jesus talks like this. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. So the two disciples went into the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the 12 disciples. Let's skip forward to verse 22. As they were eating, this takes place now further on into the Passover meal or the Seder meal. Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take it for this is my body. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Now we'll come back. We're going to come back and forth to this story a little bit this morning. So we understand this is the last supper. We're going to read this next passage in a moment, but I want to give you a little bit of background here. The Last Supper was part of a larger feast, a larger annual celebration of the Jews called Passover. And what we read about in Mark is just a small part. Passover actually had 15 different individual steps that they went through. All carried a lot of different meaning and symbolism that if you didn't come from a Jewish background or you haven't grown up Jewish, it would be lost on a lot of us, myself included. So we have this little part of the ceremony that Mark points out, which we'll learn in a little bit. The reason he pointed out is because Jesus changed the script from what they had done all their lives up to that point. If you were a disciple and say you were 40 years old, this was probably your 40th Passover. So probably for at least 34 or 35 of those times, you remembered exactly how it was supposed to go. All 15 steps, the same words, the same order, the same process every time. And now Jesus gets to these same parts and he changes the language. And he says, this is now my body. This is my blood. So right after this, Jesus goes to the garden, he prays, he's arrested, he's crucified, he raised from the dead, and then later he ascends to heaven. And 15, 20, 30 years later, the people who are getting saved now, who didn't grow up Jewish, like people who lived in Corinth, who were Greek, that Paul went to as a missionary. As they got saved, they were being taught we need to have Holy Communion. We don't have to do the whole Passover meal. But we want to at least make sure we are regularly breaking the bread of the body of Christ and drinking the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus, to think back on what he's done for us and look ahead to when we get to do this with him in person in heaven. And what was happening was in these churches, they didn't understand all of this. They just thought it was an occasion to come together and have a big party. So, yeah, they were having communion, but it looked far different from what Paul intended it to look like. And so he finally writes them a letter to correct this. And so we see when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, 
which is the, the honoring, the Holy Communion, something that happened after, after the Passover feast. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when Paul tries to correct some of the things that were going on. Uh, chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I can't praise you. It sounds as if more harm, is good, more harm than good is done when you meet together, specifically talking about to take the Lord's Supper, to have communion together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. But of course, there must be some type of division among you so that you have, who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you, you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, there are some that go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Certainly, I can't praise you for this. What he's saying is, I can't give you credit for taking communion when the way that you're taking communion is completely disrespectful and completely unmindful of what God intended for communion to represent. So what's the difference between what we call the Last Supper and the Lord's Supper in your notes, just so that we have this clear? The Last Supper was the last meal recorded in Scripture that Jesus ate before being crucified. At the time it happened, it was called the Passover celebration of the Seder meal. Then you have the Lord's Supper, which is what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34. It was a tradition that Jesus' followers are supposed to continue until Jesus comes. It's also known as Holy Communion. So Paul was pretty upset with the Corinthian church because they were making a mockery out of something that was supposed to be reverent and holy. The rich and the poor would eat two different qualities of food. The people who got there early who could afford to would eat it inside the house because Corinth was basically a bunch of small house churches of 40 to 50 people each that were scattered all over the city. And the people that were rich who were well-to-do would get there early and have the good food inside. And if you were poor, you'd have to stay in the porch or in the outer part of the house outside and you might not even get to eat at all. Some of the feasts got carried away and of all people actually overeating and getting drunk. On the, they ate too much of the food and drank too much of the wine and got drunk. Communion became not only a party, but a way that ended demonstrating favoritism and bias. And as we mentioned earlier, anything that we do regularly, it can become routine. It can become empty. It can become cold and an impersonal ritual. A lot of the Passover symbolism of the cup and the bread gets lost on us if we haven't been raised in a Jewish background because we really don't understand what the cup and the bread meant at Passover and what else was involved in the meal. So if you've ever wondered what the Last Supper really looked like, what it really tasted like, what it really meant to the disciples, we're going to take just a really quick view at this this morning. And uh, just for, as we get into this, you're, I think as, as I have found, it's very, very interesting and it's very, very valuable. And as we met together as a leadership team this past Wednesday, you know, they asked as we began to study the different elements of the Seder meal and what it really looked like. They said, you know, I wish there was some way that we as a small campus could maybe somehow do a Seder meal together. And we began to talk about it and we thought, you know, this is a great idea. So we're going to take a real quick view at some of these things this morning and we're going to have to skip over some stuff just because of time. But we're going to come back to this closer to Easter and we're actually um, going to make arrangements one Sunday to meet in the cafeteria instead of in here. We're going to set up tables. We're actually going to go through this entire Seder meal together so that you can really understand what all of these different things meant to, to people from a Jewish background. But there's a connection to all of those elements to what Jesus did when he went to the cross that adds so much meaning to all of us. So, so that's something we can be looking forward to. So don't feel bad if we skip over some of this stuff kind of quickly this morning. I want to hone in on just a few things. We'll unpack this a little bit more in the month of March. So um, just a couple things I, wa- I want us to understand about what was going on um, at Passover that led into communion. First thing that's real important to recognize is that the Passover was a complete meal. It wasn't just a short ritual. Passover was a complete meal Not just a short ritual. For those of us that just grew up in a Christian background or a Catholic background and understood communion, it happens in a matter of minutes and moments. 
But the Passover meal, actually Jesus and his disciples and what they would have practiced as Jews, actually took the better part of the evening, sometimes way on into the early morning. It took an extended period of time. As I mentioned earlier, there's actually 15 different parts of this. They encouraged a lot of interaction and participation. Even children got involved. There's a part of the Seder meal called the four questions. And uh, different kids got to actually ask questions during the meal. And it was a way for them to reflect and rehearse their history together. And they would reward the kids with candy and treats if they participated. There's all kinds of different things that they did there was times to to reflect backwards and think about their history how they came from slavery into the land of israel and to always be mindful of that there's a time to think about the difficult times there's also a time to celebrate that god delivered them from the difficult life they had into the life they currently enjoyed so there's a lot of different elements it was a way they passed down their history you think about it if, if, if you grew up in a jewish household and by the time you were 18 in, in theory, you would have sat down 18 times at least once a year and sat down with your family and people close to you and talked through your heritage and how good God had been to your family. It really builds a deep sense of meaning into your faith. And I don't think that that's a bad thing for us to include in part of our Christianity to make times that we can sit together and reflect on the goodness of God, to talk how we've overcome hard times and see how far that we've come. Um, there's a lot of different things that went on um, in the house. The way that they set up the table in their house... Um, they, they actually, it was a low table that actually would be about 18 inches off the ground. They didn't actually sit at chairs at a table like we did. They sat on the ground so they could recline back and be comfortable because they were going to be there for a while. Um, every place setting would be set with the very best, very best plate that they had would be put in front of each guest. There would be cutlery there. There would be a label indicating their name because the seats were assigned seats, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, and then on the table, you would have seen some different things. You would have seen bitter herbs. You would have seen some greens. You would have seen salt water. You would have seen vinegar. There would have been four cups that were each filled with wine. And we'll talk about those in a second. The room was lit by candlelight. When they sat around the table, this is what's interesting when you read the story of Jesus. There was a specific order in which people were to be sat. Now, this is called the Seder meal. The word Seder means ordered. As a matter of fact, because of the 50, they were all about order and symbolism. Psalm 134 through 150, I think, there's 15 psalms there. Each of those psalms were written to accompany one step of the Seder meal. I mean, they were very particular about all the, how these things tied in. So the person who was overseeing the head of the household or the person, the officiant of the, of the Seder meal would sit in chair number one. To that person's right would be the guest of honor. And they would wrap around the rest of the table in order of most important to least important. Do you remember who was sitting next to Jesus on his right at the Seder meal? It was Judas. The guest of honor he put right next to him in the Seder meal. Because there's a part of the meal, um, several parts of the meal where you participate in different things where you're supposed to break bread or dip in the bowl with the person to your right around the table. Every time that that happens, you know who Jesus kept most, in most intimate fellowship with? The guy who was about to betray him. There's a place at the table for all of us, my friends. There's a place at the table for all of us. And there Judas sat. And it probably sent a great message to the rest of the guys around the table who are constantly jockeying for position. It meant something that Jesus put Judas right there. So that was kind of what they expected when they came in to begin the Seder meal. They would have washed their hands when they came into the room. They would have, before they sat down at the table, they would have done this thing where they searched through the whole house for something called leaven. Leaven is that which you put into bread to make it rise. And leaven was symbolic in the Jewish culture of sin. So they had this practice that before we sit down at the table, we've got to look through the house. And if there's any leaven, if there's any yeast, we have to find it and get it out of the house because we can't have leaven in the house before we participate in the ceremony. Do you understand now, those of us who, who have gone into communion before and taken communion, why we say we want to examine our hearts before we take communion for any leaven, for any sin. Because we don't want to enter into an intimate ceremony with Jesus while we've got things in our heart 
that would gum up and gunk up this whole process. We want to remove those things from our lives before we begin. So all these families were used to doing this before they began um, the Passover. There's a lot more to be said about that, but let's go on to the second point. The Passover feast, which Jesus celebrated of what we now name the Last Supper, consisted of several elements. And you can look back in Exodus chapter 12 for an extensive list of this. I'm just going to hit a couple of them briefly. As a matter of fact, um, we're going to put an image up on the screen of kind of what more of a contemporary Seder plate might look like so you can get an idea of what some of these elements are. And Julie, if you want to leave that up there just for a second, um, you'll see a number of different elements uh, represented there. I'll start, if we looked at it like a clock dial, I'll briefly just talk through a couple of those things and then I'll hit a couple of them in your notes. On the top, about one o'clock there, you'll see some lettuce or greens. That was part, we won't talk a lot about that today, but greens were part of it. Many times they would dip those in the bowl. Greens symbolized the, the spring season because Passover was held in the spring. There's some other symbolism connected to it. Um, about three o'clock, you'll see a lamb shank. That represented the lamb that they would think back that would have, that would have had to have been sacrificed by every family. The night of the Passover and Exodus, you remember they had to put blood on the posts of their doors? Every family needed to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood from that specific lamb and put it on the post of the door. So every time when, it, when, when a Jewish family sits down, they would remember back to the lamb that was slain in order to buy them their protection from death to get them out of Egypt. Now, do you understand what Jesus says? I am the lamb. I'm the lamb that takes away the sin from the world. You don't have to kill an animal anymore. I will make myself that perfect spotless lamb. That next compound down there, uh, about five o'clock, is a mixture of apples, cinnamon, honey, and wine. It would taste sweet. And it was designed to look kind of like mortar that would have been used to make bricks. And it was a way for them to think back of their times in slavery when they came from a heritage of people who actually had to make bricks and were under the, under the rule of the Egyptians. Now, it tasted sweet. And when it came time for them to, we'll talk about bitter herbs in a second, when it came time for them to dip in the bitter herbs, they would take these really, they'd take parsley and dip it with the bitter herbs into salt water and vinegar, which, which taste horrible. But then they would dip it into that compound so it would taste sweet. So when they put that compound, that mixture in their mouths, they'd get in that bite, they would have this really pungent, sour, bitter taste mingled with a sweet taste. And they said that's what slavery, that's what we want to remember about our time in slavery, that it was a very difficult, bitter time, but there was also sweetness of hope that someday our God would deliver us. And we had that in the same season of our lives. The next thing at about 6 or 7 o'clock is one of the bitter herbs we'll talk about in a second. There at 9 o'clock is, is parsley, which we'll talk about in a moment. And then there, is a, then there is a boiled egg that also represented another part of the Seder meal. I can't unpack all of this for you this morning. But that, those were some of the, the elements that you would see on a Seder plate. And when we participate in the Seder meal together, every one of those things were part of the process. They all meant something. And they spent the evening talking about these things. So let's talk about bitter herbs and salt water just for a moment. Just for a moment. In your notes, we'll go back to after the second cup, there was four cups. So after the second cup, they would, uh, there would be a part of the Seder meal where they would, uh, they would eat bitter herbs dipped in salt water and vinegar. This was to remind them of their bitter oppression they faced in Egypt. Now, at the time they'd be celebrating this, they weren't in slavery anymore. Slavery anymore. But they always wanted to remember where they came from and what God took them out of. And so in order to do that, they, they, they associated taste with that, each person would take some herbs, usually parsley or celery. They would dip them into salt water and vinegar and then dip it into that other compound that I showed you of the apples and the cinnamon and the honey. The host would then dip into the same bowl as the chief guests of honor, the person on his right. 
Then they would pass the bitter herbs down and around the table. And after all the guests had taken the herbs and eaten them, they were removed from the table so they didn't have to focus on them for the rest of the meal because God doesn't want us to focus on the bitter difficulties of our past. He wants us, he wants us to be aware of where we came from, but he doesn't want us to have to focus on that for the rest of our lives, and I'm thankful for that. So that was symbolic of what they did there. Then after that, they had what's called the four questions. The children would be prompted to ask several questions. They'd ask, why are we having the Passover tonight? Why bitter herbs? Why dip them in the vinegar twice? And why do we eat reclining? And that every time that they did that, they gave an opportunity for different people in their family to explain to everybody again, to remind us, this is why we do what we do. Why do we read the Bible every day? Why do we clap at the end of a worship song? Why do we get together on Sunday morning? Why do we believe that if we sin, we need to make confession to God? These are very fair, very real questions that if we can get to a place as a Christian community that we can feel comfortable just exchanging these types of conversations, it adds a depth to our faith that was very present in the lives of those who celebrated the Passover. Then after that, the bread, the unleavened bread, would be broken and distributed among the guests. They take The host would break the bread in half, and half of the bread would be put away and hidden later on for dessert, and they'd start with that first half of the bread they'd pass around the table. The host would break it. It, it's what most scholars believe when the, when the host broke that first half in bread, the second half was the one that was believed to be more tender, more, more delicious. And when they hid that, one of the kids later on would have to go and find it and bring it back. It's that second half, the most tender part of the bread that most scholars believe is the bread that, that when Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, it was that second half of the bread. Let's talk about unleavened bread just for a second. Unleavened bread is the other element I wanted to draw our attention to this morning. Um, it was to remind them of the haste with which they had to leave Egypt. Also, leaven was symbolic of sin, as we talked about earlier. So part of their Seder meal was to explore the house and make sure there was no leaven before eating the meal. And then they would eat the unleavened bread because their forefathers had to flee quickly. If you remember back in the story of the Old Testament, or if you've never heard it before, you can go back into those, those uh, passages, Exodus 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. You can go back into those parts of the Old Testament and look at it. When Pharaoh finally decided to release the, the uh, Israelites to, to flee Egypt and start moving towards Israel, they had to move very quickly. And think about it, they had to, I mean, you had to just get out of your house as fast as you could, and they didn't have bug out bags and everything else like the preppers have today. They just had to go as quick as they could. And so they didn't even have time to let the bread, they needed food to eat on the way, so they didn't even have time to let the bread rise. They had to make it without yeast, pack it on their shoulders, and let the sun harden it as they fled. And so every year when it came time for the Passover, they would eat unleavened bread because it would remind them how quickly that they had to leave. Um, And after this, after they passed it around, the father of the home would recount their history. He would read the Passover aloud from Exodus chapter 12. Then they'd sing a song and move on to the four cups of wine. So let's look at the four cups of wine. There was four cups of wine that they would, that they would, that the host would talk about and then pass around the table for them all to partake of during the Passover feast. Each cup stood for something specific. The first cup was the cup of deliverance. And it goes back to Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. They broke that verse down into four different phrases, and each phrase represented one of the cups. That first cup of deliverance, the host would, they would wash their hands, and the host would bless the cup and remind them of God said that he would bring us out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. He'd set us free from slavery. We wouldn't have to be prisoner to somebody else anymore. This was a time of celebration, and so they would drink that cup and pass it around the table. Then there was cup number two, which was the cup of freedom, or the cup of the plagues. And this is kind of neat how they how they 
talked about this. It was from the second part of Exodus chapter 6, which says, I will free you from being slaves to them. And during this cup, they would actually name the plague. They would recite the plagues out loud around the table. So they would remember the plagues that God sent upon the, upon the Egyptians that eventually forced Pharaoh's hand to give them their freedom. So that was the second cup that they had. So they washed their hands again after drinking this cup. And washing their hands was symbolic of purifying themselves. There's a special way that they did it that we can't unpack this morning. It's incredibly valuable and meaningful. And we'll do that when we celebrate the meal together. But a prayer was made as the cup was passed around. They would mention the plagues individually. Then the host, after the second cup, the host would break the guest of honor's bread. And they would dip it into the bitter herbs together. So this is the point when the Bible says that the disciples were asking questions. Which you understand now was totally fine at Passover. It was encouraged for people to ask the host questions. This is how they learned their faith together. So one of them said, you know, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, somebody's going to betray me tonight. Remember, they said, well, who? Not me, not me. Who is it, Lord? He says, the person that I dip together in the bowl with is the person who's going to betray me. And he turns to the person on his right, breaks his bread, and they dip in the bowl. And in fact, the host was supposed to give the morsel, the most tender part of the bread, to the person to the right. And here, the whole time that Judas is kissing Jesus, he's really plotting to kill him. And yet Jesus, knowing all that, knowing about the bad that he would do, still kept him close to him. You know, God knows the mistakes not only that we have made, he knows what we're going to do too. And yet it doesn't make him love you and me any less. And it's just a striking picture of that in, in the Last Supper. So he takes that bread, there's no yeast in it, he thanks God, he breaks it. And the disciples are ready for just the traditional speech. And then when Jesus breaks it, he says, this is now my body which is broken for you. Can you imagine the shock value? You, let's say you're 40 years old. You've heard this 35 times the same way. And now Jesus says, this is no longer just the matzo, the unleavened bread. This is my body, which is going to be broken for you and starts passing it around the table. The questions slowed down. They're trying to process what's going on. What Jesus is really saying is, In just a few days, you'll understand why you no longer need rituals and laws and sacrifices to be right with God. I will become the lamb that will be torn apart, whose blood will be used to cover over your sins ultimately once and forever. I will be. There's no way they could have understood that yet. But friends, today we have the benefit of history to understand the revelation that comes to us in that. Then uh, the guest in turn would break his neighbor's bread and so on down the line. And it was at this point that Judas left the meal and Jesus continued on with the traditional Seder meal. Then you have cup three, the cup of redemption. And that's from Exodus 6, 6, where it says, I will redeem you. It says, then Jesus took the cup of wine. Scholars believe that this was the, the third cup because it happened after supper. The third cup is the cup of redemption. Redeem means, redeem means to buy back. It reminds them of, of uh, back in Egypt on the, on the night of Passover when they had to put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and the angel of death went through all of Egypt. And any door that had the blood there, the angel passed over. But any door that did not have in there, the angel went in, the angel of death went in and killed the firstborn. It was ultimately that plague that finally forced Pharaoh's hand that released the Israelites. So the cup represented redemption to be bought back. When God said, you've been bought into slavery, but I will buy you back from slavery. So Jesus now gets ready to, he, he blesses the cup and then he passes it around. They're ready for him to say the traditional thing. And what does Jesus say? He says, this cup is the new covenant now, the new agreement, the new standard. And it's not in the blood of the lamb anymore. This covenant is now my blood, which will be shed for the redemption of all of us because of our sins. And he passes it around the table. 
This is how the blood of Jesus affects our lives. When we come into relationship with Jesus, when we invite him into our lives, when we ask him to, when we come to a place where we recognize how lost we are, that we've done life our own way, that we've made our own decisions, that we're our own gods, that we've made our own choices that we see best, and we're ready to give that up and surrender to Jesus, what happens, the Bible says, is that the blood of Jesus, we don't have to go out and kill an animal, we don't have to kill one of our pets and sacrifice to God. All we have to do is accept the payment that has already been made for us by Jesus, the Lamb of God's perfect blood that was shed ultimately for all of us, it covers over our sins so that when God looks at our life, He doesn't see us through that lens anymore. He only sees the blood of His Son applied to the sins of our past. That's what it means to all of us when Jesus says this. And here's what's interesting. After this cup, there really there's a fourth cup, which is called the cup of consummation, or completion, the cup of praise. It was from that part of the verse where it says, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And every single time when they had the Passover and the Seder meal, this was the last part. Then they would sing a hymn and then they would pray and then that would be the end of the Seder meal. But they get to this part, there's supposed to be one more cup. The cup comes back to Jesus and what does Jesus say? He says, I'm not going to finish the meal this evening, men. We're not going to finish the Seder meal tonight. He says, I'm not going to drink of this cup. I'm not going to drink the fourth cup. I'm going to wait. I'm not going to do it yet. I'm going to suspend this Seder meal indefinitely until I can drink it together in heaven with everybody who will ever call on my name and follow me. And then we will finish this meal together. Do you understand that up until this moment right now, that is still incomplete? The Last Supper is still not over. This is why Paul said it is important for all of us who find salvation in Jesus to regularly be involved in communion because communion does two things. We think back and we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross and where we've come from and what his body and blood really mean. And we never get to the point where his body and blood are routine to us. But we also look forward and we say, even so, Jesus, please come quickly. And we can't wait until we gather together with everybody throughout all history who's ever had relationship with Jesus Christ and we get to finish this meal together. Then he'll finally drink that cup and he can say, now I'm your God. Now you're my people. That's why it's important for us to do this, not just once in a while. That's why it's important for us to do it regularly. But when we take communion together, friends, let's not just make it a regular, routine, empty, impersonal thing that we do. Let's examine our hearts for any leaven that might be in there. Let's think back over where we've been and where God's taken us. Let's remember what Jesus' body and blood really mean. And let's keep this alive until he comes. It's a powerful thing when you think about what we do. We take communion. We're keeping the Last Supper alive through the Lord's Supper until the Lord comes to gather us together and we get to complete the meal all together. So in conclusion, as our team gets ready to, to service the elements, just, just two things. The last four weeks, we've been talking about the difference between a Jesus fan and a Jesus follower. Jesus fans and Jesus followers both would say that they love God. They both probably have a relationship with him. They might both be on their way to heaven. Jesus fans, though, when things get tough, they, they tend to withdraw. When we started looking at different characteristics of the difference between a Jesus fan and a Jesus follower, we were trying to look at our own lives that way and say, you know what, I might be on my way to heaven. Or I might, be at least, I might be at least thinking about having a relationship with Jesus. But maybe in some of these areas I look more like a, a follower of Jesus. Like one of those people who followed him for a while and then withdrew and followed him no more. 
And at Echo, it's really important to us that we all are on that pathway to becoming fully committed, unapologetic followers of Jesus. So what's the difference when it comes to to communion or reading our Bible or other things that we're supposed to do regularly in our faith? Jesus fans demonstrate indifference towards the body and the blood of Jesus. What What do you mean by that, Pastor? That's a hard statement. What I mean by that is that Jesus fans might take communion, but it's just something that they do. They don't really think about it real seriously. It's not that big of a deal. They just do it because everybody else is doing it. They feel better about themselves when they do it. They read their Bible sometimes, not necessarily because they want to or they're going there to get meaning or to grow. They just, they just read it to do it. They look at indifference. They don't, they, don't, they don't feel anything. There's not a personal connection. It's just something, a habit that they go through that's empty. But Jesus' followers have reverence and gratitude for what Jesus' body and blood truly mean. That's who I want to be. I'd like to tell you that in every area of my life, I am absolutely just knocking it out of the park of Jesus follower. That would, that would absolutely be insulting your intelligence. But I'm telling you what, that's where I'm trying to go in my life. Every single area of my life, I, I, I'm asking God to challenge my heart. God, if, if, if I'm kind of wishy-washy in this area, will you deal with me? Today, I'm just examining my own heart and my own attitude towards communion. And I want this to be something regular that we do here at Echo. And we're going to. We're going to do this regularly. But I don't ever, as a pastor, want to do something just for the sake of doing it. If we're going to do it, then let's understand what we're doing. Let's understand why we're doing it. Let's honor God and how we're doing it. So this morning, I want to give you an opportunity because at Echo, we practice open communion across all of our campuses we do. And all that that means is, I know we have a lot of people from different, we have all kinds of different religious and, and cultural backgrounds here. Some of us grew up with very different ideas of communion from what, from what we have here, and that's fine too. This is the way that we understand it, trying to lay it out for you this morning so you can track along with us. One thing is we practice open communion. It means you don't have to be a member of Trinity Life to, be, to take communion. But we do want you to have a relationship with Jesus before that you take communion. Because really, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it's, communion's not going to do anything for you spiritually. The first step, the first step, first step is to accept what Jesus did on the cross for you with your, with, through his body and through his blood. To start your life over. To have that chance to put those things behind you and to live the life that he's always wanted for you to live. It doesn't mean that you have to make a whole bunch of changes in your life before you pray that prayer. As a matter of fact, that's what most of us try to do. We try to get all cleaned up on our own first and eventually we find out that that doesn't work. No matter how hard we try, we're always going to fail in some area. I just want to invite you to the cross and invite you back into the relationship with Jesus today. Let me pray over and give you a chance to make that decision. Then we're going to receive communion together. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. If you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, you've never asked. You've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins. You've never come to a place where you recognize your lostness. Or maybe you have come to that place and you're just really scared about what this next season in your life might look like. If I start a relationship with Jesus, are my friends going to have to change? Are all my habits going to have to change? And you're psyching yourself out of this whole thing. You're wrestling with exchanging your current life, which you know. For a life in Jesus, which you don't have any idea what that's going to look like. All I'm asking you to do is just be honest in your heart. Maybe just surrender to that tug you feel from the Holy Spirit to come and know Jesus. If you want to start a relationship with Jesus this morning, it's something you can do right here, right now. You can pray a prayer very similar to the prayer that I prayed when I asked Jesus into my life. That that would just go something like this. Jesus, I recognize I've been living life on my own. I've sinned. I've disobeyed you. I've made my own choices. But you know, I recognize that that's not the way I want the rest of my life to play out. 
I need to have a relationship with you. And so I confess to you, I admit without excuse that I've sinned and have done my own thing. But today, I ask you to please forgive me, Jesus. Please cancel my debts. And I know that really what I, what I deserve is death. I deserve punishment. I deserve separation from you forever. But someone's already paid the price. Someone's already paid the consequences. Someone's already died a death in my place. Jesus, that's what you did when your body was torn and your blood was shed for me. So I just accept what you did for me. Please apply the blood to my life. Cover me so that I can have relationship with God. We're going to switch seats now, Jesus. You're the king. I'm just your servant. In precious name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite our team to come. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to just, our worship team's going to lead us and they're going to distribute the elements. They're all they're kind of self-contained. All I would ask is just hold on to them for a second. Once everybody's been served, we'll receive communion together. But what you can do while you're waiting to be served or after you've been served is you can just take a moment and just ask God to examine your heart. If there's anything in your heart that's, that's not right, that's out of place, this is a perfect time for you to just surrender that to Jesus and just ask Him to come in and cover you. It's also a great time to reflect back on everything that God's already done for you so that in a moment when we take communion together, you can have a sense of joy and celebration in your heart. They'll serve you. Kim, will you lead us? Just ask you to stand this morning. Has, every, has anybody not been served? I want to make sure that everybody has. Any, will you just stand with me this morning? We're going to receive communion. And then we're just going to open up the altars with our prayer team. If you have a need in your life that we can pray with, we're just going to close with a song of worship at the end. But um, for those of you that may not have seen these, these packets before, that little top clear layer of plastic, you can open that up and take out the little wafer that represents the body. And then there's a second little foil top that you can, that you can pull back. And that represents the, the cup or the blood. The Apostle Paul continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he says, the night Jesus was betrayed, he, he did take bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Let's pray and thank God for, the, for his body. And then we'll eat together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for taking my place and giving up your body. You had done nothing wrong. You'd done nothing but come to the world to try and seek and save people who were lost. That's all that you did. You went around spreading love and joy and kindness and truth. You helped people. You believed in people. You didn't in any way, shape, or form deserve what happened to you on that day. And you could have stopped the whole process if you wanted to, yet you were obedient to your Father and trusted His love for the world to lay down your body and endure having yourself torn apart and arrested and beaten and whipped and starved and tortured and ultimately murdered and hung on a cross to be embarrassed. You did it for me. I'm sorry that sometimes I forget what you went through for me and I got caught up in my own problems. But today, I just thank you for what you did for all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for your body. Let's take and eat his body. This is the way for this morning. Thank you, God. So thankful for you, for what you've done for us. Paul continues his writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he 
he handed it to his disciples. He said, take and drink. This is my blood, which is shed for the remission, the redemption, the forgiveness, the cancellation of your sins. Let's thank Jesus for his blood this morning. Jesus, thank you so much for being willing to shed your innocent blood, to become the perfect lamb that takes away the sin of the world that can be applied to my life. So that when God looks at my life, he doesn't have to see a collection of all my failures, of all my garbage, of all my past. All he can see is the covering of the blood of Jesus. We're sorry for trivializing and cheapening it by forgetting. But this morning, we thank you for what you were willing to do for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Let's drink the cup together. Thank you, Jesus. We look forward to the day when we don't have to drink out of cups and eat little wafers anymore, when we can be together with you in heaven, with our new bodies and our new lives, completely cleansed and clean from sin. To look into your eyes and to be in your presence and not have to be separated by the chasm of time and space and us being finite and you being infinite. We look forward to that day. We look forward to that day. Our team's going to come and and they'll pass those buckets back if you want to drop your little, your little cups in there so you don't have to carry them with us. I've just asked Kim and, and the team just to lead us in that song again, Oh, the Blood. Our prayer team is going to come. Those of you that have been with us regularly know normally during our worships, worship time we have prayer team people here. If you've got anything going on in your life that you want prayer for, we just thought it might be better to end our service that way. We still have a few minutes. Please don't slip out just yet. We're not going to let this time drag on indefinitely. But I want to give you a chance just to respond to Jesus in our worship. Worship is an appropriate response for our love for God. And so our, our prayer team is coming. They'll be standing on either side of these speakers here. They'll be available to you. If there's anything going on in your life that we can pray with you about, we'd be happy to do it. Team, those of you that have the buckets, you feel free to just begin to, you can drop your trash in there. The family, this is just a time for us to seal what we've heard with worship and with prayer. So, Kimry, will you and the team please lead us? If you have anything at all going on in your life, please come. Let us pray with you. Let us minister to you. Don't carry those burdens out with you. Let us pray over you this morning, and then we'll close.